So, are you in? Yep, absolutely. Positively gunning for it. Um, but... Yeah? In for what? You know. Do I? Isn't it obvious? Uh, no. Think about it. Think about all the things which have led to this moment. Think of what this means for your future. I'm thinking. So, are you in? Yes, as long as you tell me what I'm in for. You know how you like reading comics, playing console games, and drinking Mountain Dew? Uh, yeah. Well, it's nothing like that. It's more life-changing. Mm, I'm intrigued. Sign me up. So you're in? Yeah, I'm in. No buts? No whys? No hesitation? I am so in that people think my eagerness is embarrassing. Great. Now here's the paperwork. Uh, hold on, there's another paper by Lee Basham. You said you were in. Yeah, yeah, but... No buts, no whys, no hesitation. That was the deal. Fine, I guess I'm in for another instalment of Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. The podcast's Guide to the Conspiracy, featuring Josh Addison and M. Dentith. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy in Auckland, New Zealand. I am Josh Edison, and in Auckland, New Zealand, they are Dr. M. Dentith. How are you, Dr. M. Dentith? I am very Doctoral. much Dr. M. Rx Dentith. Right. Actually, I oh know I'm, I'm actually, actually quite good for reasons that will become apparent when we talk about the patron bonus episode, but... Long story short, a special issue of the journal Social Epistemology that I spent a large chunk of last year working on as editor. Those papers are slowly trickling out online, and I am very pleased with both the papers and also eager raised due to my shepherding of those papers through the process. Although really, the hard work was done by the writers, I just did the whole thing of prodding them to get things on time so a special issue would come out. But still, it does flatter the old ego to feel, yes, my name's associated with these great, great papers which are coming out even as we speak. Mm. Well, then I guess it's appropriate we're doing a Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre episode, although, of course, the paper we're looking at is not one of these brand spanking new ones that you're, I, I, I'm gathering, wholly responsible for. Um, oh yes, I'm, I'm just, yes. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, they may have come up with the ideas. They may have written the words down. They may have responded to peer review and improved their papers. But at essence, I think we can and all spirit. agree that my filthy hands are all over the text in some way, shape, or form. Probably making the papers worse. Mm. Well, as as far as I'm aware. Your grubby paw prints are not in the paper we're uh, on the paper we're looking at today. Although I do see your referenced a couple of times, so that's nice. Um, we're looking at a paper by Lee Basham, who actually, to be honest, because we've had Christmases and holidays, and I've been overseas and all of that business, I I can't even remember what we most recently talked about in Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. So I don't know how long it's been since we've well, talked about Lee Basham, but it feels right. like it's been a while. The last one we looked at was Keith Harris's What is Epistemically Problematic About Conspiracy yes, Theories, or is it What is Epistemically Wrong About Conspiracy Theories, which, as I noted, is in the Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre series, even though I do not consider it to be 
a masterpiece because we're now kind of moving away from the classic papers into the newer work. I do think Lee's paper probably does belong in that older era of classic establishing papers, even though there are some things about the paper that I'm not completely on board with. But we'll talk about that as we go through. But this is a great paper by Lee. It's the usual kind of barnstorming approach he has Mm. towards going, well, look, actually, these things are not as bad as people make them out to be. And also look at the consequences of not treating conspiracy theories seriously. But maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Maybe a little. Certainly, if we haven't played a chime, I don't think we've officially started talking about the paper yet. So get a chime in there or a sting or a hit or a whatever you call it. I'm, I'm no audio engineer. Some kind of final countdown? It'll do. Welcome to Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. Didn't sound that final, but I'll accept it. So, we are looking at the paper called Joining the Conspiracy that uh, Lee Basham had published in Argumenta. Now, this was a special issue on conspiracy theories. So, I have my paper, The Problem of Conspiracism, also appears in the series. But of course, we don't cover my papers in Conspiracy Theory no. Masterpiece Theater because it would be inappropriate for me to review my own work, let alone claim that they are masterpieces. Mm, yes, would be a little bit weird. Maybe we'll, maybe one day we'll come up with some way of discussing your papers. But I'm thinking but some I kind of mind device. Maybe. If I can just erase the last mm. fifteen years of my life, and then you explain to me what a podcast is, then maybe I can review my own papers. That would be quite fascinating. Mm. Would I like my own work? Or if you mind wiped me, would I turn into a generalist? Oh, that's that's starting to sound like you're practicing philosophy there, and I don't approve. Let's get back to this philosophy paper. <clears throat> it has an abstract, which I choose to read now. Accompanying the accusation of malevolent political conspiracy is the accusation of cover-up of these conspiracies by leading institutions of public information, mass media and national law enforcement. A common response to this accusation is that these institutions of public information will reliably reveal such political conspiracies, not cover them up. Unfortunately, the best arguments for this hope are now widely recognised to fail. Further cover-up does not require descending control of the media by conspirators. The problem is much more complex and one endemic to our information hierarchies. This includes the mechanisms generating the epistemic problem of toxic truths. Toxicity is the likelihood that some conspiratorial scenarios, even if well-evidenced, are too toxic for our usual institutions of public information to disseminate to the public or even investigate. Cover-up by intentional neglect, not descending control, is the easily predictable consequence. The threat this poses to a functioning democracy is significant. Indeed, to quote mm. Teal from Stargate SG-1. Please. And also one episode of Stargate Atlantis, but not, strangely enough, any guest appearance in Stargate Universe. Do you know, I don't know if I've ever watched a full episode of Stargate of any series. I saw the movie, the first one, with James Spader in there. And Kurt Russell. Mm. Don't forget mm. Kurt Russell. No, I never forget Kurt Russell. Anyway... <clears throat> So that's that's uh, that, that's your abstract. We go straight away into section one, the introduction, which begins, what if our institutions of public information do not always have the ability to expose malevolent conspiracies worming their way through our society with fast consequences? What if, worse, even given this ability, these institutions often have compelling society regarding reasons not to publicly reveal these conspiracies? Um, and so, I mean, th- this paper, j- just in general, this paper seemed 
more, more, more sort of a development of stuff that Lee has talked about in the past than introducing a lot new. There, there was a lot of a lot of themes that have come up before in his papers. So he's he's talking about these two things that have come up before. One is the idea of the public trust approach. The which PTA. is the, label, the PTA, which is the label he gives to the claim we should be confident that institutions of public information can and will reliably reveal ambitious or momentous conspiracies. And, and not some, a reference to the Parents Teachers Association, which no. is a, or the post primary teachers association. Uh, PTA has a different meaning in Aotearoa, New Zealand. It does, yes. But we can put that aside for now because, as well as his particular PTA, he's also talking about the idea of toxic truths, which he defines as follows. <clears throat> Toxicity is a set of truths, or at least well-justified or warranted assertions, or a temporal pattern of such, that if convincingly revealed by mainstream news outlets and national law enforcement within a certain relatively proximate time frame to the events in question, a, would with some significant probability, not restricted to 50% or more, but often higher, be extremely socially and or politically disrupting, and B, in many cases, this consequence is easily foreseeable by any reasonable person conversant with the current civilization, at the person on the street criterion. There were a lot of qualifications in that, that one definition there. Yeah, and as we'll see, toxicity is a very interesting concept. And I think Lee is pointing towards something which is valuable here, which is that you can live in a society where it turns out there are pressures to not reveal disastrous information about what's going on within that society. And I think generally that idea is a good one. And I think it also is evidenced by certain responses to things. I mean, one of the longstanding debates that is going to be going on post the pandemic is were certain Western nations aware that their health and economic policies were in fact deleterious to the public good, but have kept that information from the public because they want to engender a certain degree of trust in the institutions which delivered those decisions? I.e., is it going to turn out that after the pandemic has ended and inquiries are made, people are going to go, but you knew economically this wouldn't work and you also knew that these people were going to be kind of discarded by your health response, and you did it anyway, which would be information which would be very destabilizing or cause distrust in authority. So he's pointing towards something really interesting there. But yes, I agree the criteria here that it's kind of, in one case, is putting numbers on things, and you should always be suspicious of philosophers if they start putting numbers on things because we're not very good with numbers historically. And also the person on the street criterion, which people, which straight? Mm. Yeah, I mean, having read ahead, things like this, the requirement of a, within a certain relatively proximate time frame to the events and things like that, there do seem to be a reason for all of them. He talks through a lot of all of this stuff. But yes, lumping them all together like that does seem like there's quite a bit of a bit of hedging going on. But he continues, we will explore and defend the following thesis. Contrary to the PTA, toxicity predictably and in crisis scenarios powerfully constrains publicized mainstream media investigations as well as those of national law enforcement when B, that's the, the, the person on the street criterion, is also met. 
For instance, in the hypothetical case of a false flag massive attack on civilians, this is the inversion of the public trust approach. This is clearly an important thesis for social epistemology and for further research, both analytical and empirical. And he goes on to use um, examples such as the lead up to the 2003 war in Iraq and to the Vietnam War, specifically the, the Gulf of Tonkin incident that led to that, uh, uses them as examples of apparently true institutional conspiracy theories um, regarding the US government. He says, we must ask how much unrecognized and so unchecked power derives from the very existence of such institutions. And even if recognized, how are our institutions of public information, media and law enforcement likely to respond? Um, and so his, his little point there, especially regarding the Gulf of Tonkin one, is that the, the, the truth of that incident was was toxic. And so at the time was suppressed. I don't actually know if that's how true that is or not. I don't, we've talked about the Gulf of Tonkin, but I don't we have. And of course, there actually turns out there are, there are two <clears throat> incidents in the Gulf of Tonkin, one of which was an event which was presented to the American public in such a way that didn't actually resemble what happened on the water that day. And so when people talk about the Gulf of Tonkin incident, they're usually talking about that second institute, which was institute? In, but another, I, was, I was about to creep myself and then go mm. institution. What mm. I meant to say was incident. Ah. They usually talk about that second incident and the way that the military and then the government of the United States of America use that to then license police action in Vietnam. It's, I mean, the Vietnam War is one of those one of those awkward bits of American mm. history. Very, very awkward for a bunch of reasons, including what appears to be the precipitating event which caused conflict on that peninsula. Vietnam's a peninsula? No, or am I thinking Korea is a peninsula and Vietnam's not really actually peninsula-like at all? Uh, my sense of geography fails me at this point, but yes, I think you're thinking of Korea. I am thinking of Korea. South Korea. Mm. Anyway. Yeah, I yeah I, I, Vietnam, I think, just has a coastline. Mm. Mm. Uh, but at any rate... So that's that's the setup. That's that's where we're going. And so he goes through these two different things: the the idea of the public trust approach and the idea of of um, toxic truths that makes up the body, the main body of this paper. So starting in section two, we look at the public trust approach. And yeah, again, a lot of this stuff was quite familiar. This 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 goes all the way back to his his earliest papers, where he was arguing against Brian L. Keeley. Um, sort of saying that Brian takes the public trust approach and he was arguing against that. Um, and we've we've kind of pushed back upon that by going, Lee's not really showing the most charitable interpretation mm. of Brian. Now, admittedly, as we've discussed numerous times in this series, there is a problem with Brian's paper, which is that he moves from talking about mature and unwarranted conspiracy theories in the first half to a kind of what appears to be sui generis discussion of conspiracy theories in the second half. It's fairly clear if you're reading the paper charitably, the second half of that discussion is concerning mature and thus unwarranted conspiracy th theories. And thus he's not espousing the kind of public trust approach that Lee is attributing to him. And yet it's also understandable as to why you might make that interpretation if you don't kind of track Brian losing the continuity of his terminology throughout that paper. And as I think I've also stressed several times in the series, I too have been guilty 
of claiming that Brian subscribes to a public trust approach. I talk about that in the philosophy of conspiracy theories, and I now recognize that it's not the charitable interpretation of Brian's work we should be taking from that seminal paper of conspiracy theories. Mm. Also, so it's one of the points where Lee and I kind of diverge. Lee still takes it that Brian is kind of an exemplar of the PTA. I don't think Brian's a member of any parent-teacher association that I know of in the United States. No, no, do they even have them over there? Probably not. Yeah, I, I found it a little bit strange that at least in the for a lot of this section of the paper, he's at, he's referring right back to Brian's work from 1999, which from a paper in 2018, you know, we're almost going back 20 years, uh, it, it did seem a little bit odd that he wasn't talking about things that are a bit more recent. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get through that. So the section starts with the sentence, conspiracy is dangerous to democracy, which will come up again and again throughout this paper. He refers to David Cody's talks on, on similar things. And so he says, mainstream accounts of recent history reveal that high-level conspiracies happen with disquieting frequency. Watergate and the Pentagon's deceitful conduct of the Vietnam War are obvious, well-researched examples, and that similar conspiracies may even be the basis of more recent policy, the launching of the West's recent wars in the Middle East is a plausible example. A compelling case can be made that the Bush administration and the Pentagon knowingly provided the public with many misleading and false claims about the terrorist threats involved in, the, in Afghan and, sorry, Afghanistan and Iraq. Now, he, he does point out that even at the time, even when the case was being made for the war in sort of 2002-2003, there were experts at the time criticizing this and saying, no, we don't think this is true. But the media at the time wasn't pushing this, you know, was it, to the extent that they even reported it at all, weren't reporting this as sort of the official and view. And that's where I wonder whether Lee is kind of has blinders with respect to being from the US, because I remember the media response we got from, say, the UK and in Australasia, and the media was talking about the trumped-up way that the US and the UK were presenting this kind of case for war in Iraq, which everyone was going, yeah, but the UN weapons inspectors don't seem to think that's true. And here's all this other information. We've got we've got suspicions about things. And so one of my worries about the toxic truth approach is that you could go a little bit too overboard and take it to be kind of a general brush to say this is why these things occur. I think what's really curious about the invasion of Iraq in 2003 is that there were people in the media and other non-governmental institutions who were pointing out the case for war was flawed. And it turned out governments went, well, we can just ignore the criticism. Mm. I mean, they're revealing the toxic truth of exactly what we're up to. And we're not going to do anything about it. And I think the proof of that is that George W. Bush and Tony Blair are not declared war criminals spending time in prison. They are acceptable members of society in the present day. They got away with it. People know what they got away with. There's no hiding what they did. It's just that it turns out you can tell a big lie and then just work through it. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, in, in Lee's defence, in, in the first section, his examples were, were specifically in the context of the of the US government, so maybe he's still thinking about that here 
and he does have his little thing about the the whole the whole point that toxicity uh, only applies within a certain time frame, and there can be issues of you know what, what's done is done afterwards. But mm, but, but yeah. I mean, we, people were criticizing the invasion of Iraq in the media as the invasion mm. was going on and the build up to the invasion. So it's not as if time passed and then it got revealed and Bush and Blair went, oops, you caught me, but you know, what are you going to do? They were being challenged on this throughout the entire process. I mean, maybe the US is a special case here, but mm. in the rest in the rest of the Western world, there were criticisms and they were prompt criticisms in the media as the invasion was going ahead. Mm. Yes, yeah, I, I think we might get into that in a bit more as it goes on, but for the moment... Um, so as an example, basically, of, of to set the scene and show exactly what he's going to be talking about, he gives a quick summary of uh, the, a variety of 9-11 conspiracy theories, the, the your, your me-hops and your lee-hops. Um, your be, bee-bops, your lily-bops. Yep, all of that. And so having said those out, he then, he then says a standard reply to such conspiracy theories being uh, put forward is that Mainstream media would have launched riveting, withering coverage of the nightmare in its many dimensions. Law enforcement would have conducted investigations leading to public arrests, trials and convictions. President Bush would have been perp-walked to a waiting police van. But none of this happened, or likely ever will, so these accusations are almost certainly false. And that uh, is is his example of the public trust approach in action. which, as you said, is, is sort of an uh, an absence of evidence is evidence of absence kind of an inference. It's like you know, surely if these conspiracy theories were true, people you know, and, and massive crimes had been committed. Essentially, we have people whose job it is to investigate those crimes and and prosecute them. So surely that would have happened, and it hasn't happened. So I guess the conspiracy theories must not be true. And yet, this is the kind of view that he's going to be arguing against. And so here he starts talking about about Brian's stuff, and he was where it started to stick out to me. Why 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 is he talking about the paper from 1999 in 2018? But nevertheless, he 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 goes through the things that Brian said in his earlier papers and says we should recognise that Keeley is not making the implausible. Sorry, <clears throat> I need to emphasise that we should recognise that Keeley is not making the implausible claim that if an ambitious political or economic conspiracy is real, then the media, government officials, or other sources will inevitably successfully report it. And so we should infer, since it was not reported, it did not occur. He recognises that sometimes dramatic conspiratorial secrets will be successfully kept from, from sufficient numbers of people or the right kind of people for a period sufficient for the success of these conspiracies and even indefinitely for good reasons, national security, for instance, and on occasion for bad reasons. Now, in Lee's defence, you have to realise that after Of Conspiracy Theories, the next publication that Brian produces is kind of a response to Lee in the Conspiracy Theories, the Philosophical Debate book edited by David Cody, Nobody Expects the Spanish Inquisition mm. from 2003. And then Brian's next work is God as the Ultimate Conspiracy Theorist, and that's in the Episteme special issue in 2007. And I don't think Brian is exploring the same kind of concepts and God is the ultimate conspiracy theorist, as he is when he's talking... Oh, actually, sorry, God is the ultimate conspiracy theory, not ultimate conspiracy theorist. Although God would be the ultimate conspiracy theorist. Three in one, easy to plot with. 
hard mm. to find out about. He does move in mysterious ways. So mysterious. So it's, it is fair for Lee to go, well, look, the main text I'm drawing upon for characterizing Brian's view is this 1999 pa- paper. So having gone... So, so I mean, yes, he, he, he's doing a lot of sort of summarizing Brian's views and, and, and reacting to them. He says, in this case, the issue becomes, how likely is it that a complicated crime, one beyond the reach of ordinary minds, could be covered up indefinitely or for a sufficient amount of time from a sufficient amount or kind of people? Is anything approaching the conclusion almost certainly not justified? And he starts, so while this section is on the public trust approach and the next section is on toxic truths, the, 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 his point is that the toxic truths kind of put paid to the public trust approach. So he starts talking about them fairly early on here. He says, here we meet the real force of the problem of toxic truths. The problem of toxic truths can threaten to invert our apparently warranted expectations of public institutions of information, our public trust. Critically examining public trust helps us see how these expectations might predictably, even reliably, flip. This inversion thesis is the ultimate thesis of this paper. So he says, when he's talking about information hierarchies, he sort of talks about how originally that your hierarchy would be, you'd, you know, in, in, in earlier earlier times, you'd get your information from the people around you who you spoke to, and then um, over time, we sort of now we have the idea that the information kind of comes from the top down, from your official sources, gets disseminated through media and what have you. And so he says, in, in, in this sort of case, information hierarchies can be inverted so that they, as he puts it, have a very limited number of persons in the role of control. So it's the probable relevance judgments and potential and intentional neglect by such leadership that are critical for estimating the prospect of undirected cover-up. And this is something he's going to be coming back to, the idea that stuff gets covered up not because the evil forces at the top are are, um, are dictating that anyone in a position to report on it is, mustn't report on it. He's, sort of, he'll, he's going to go on to say that it, it can just sort of happen due to the sorts of toxic truths and institution he's going to be talking about. Uh, but he talks more about about Brian's arguments, uh, in in particular how Brian compares uh, the sciences to the likes of government and the press, as, as as saying that they're all institutions that have processes and safeguards to prevent bad information from coming out. He sort of you know, talks about how sciences we have all these processes of checking and reviewing and what have you that are supposed to to ensure that the information coming out of these institutions is reliable. And he says, and there are similar ones elsewhere. But but Lee says. But is there really sufficient parallel between the reliable regulation of information in the sciences and the political and economic realm to justify such a sweeping, hopeful conclusion? While initially appealing, the analogy becomes unconvincing. There are both problematic disanalogies as well as stunning failings even within scientific peer review, which give Keeley's analogy predict at least as, sorry, which given Keeley's analogy predict at least as stunning failures within public institutions of information. Uh, and so there are a couple of things there. So, so one thing, as Brian himself pointed out, that unlike scientific evasion, uh, investigation, the subjects of a conspiracy are often, or always, I guess, if it's an actual conspiracy, actively trying to hide Not from investigation. always. I mean, you can you can conspire and then go, oops, as long as nobody looks into it, we're going to be sweet. As Charles Pigton has argued, claims about disinformation production or cover-ups are always auxiliary hypotheses for certain conspiracy theories. Sometimes you hide what you're doing and you then don't 
continue to try hiding what you've done. Sometimes you just do it and walk away. Mm. Yeah, but in most cases, I mean, especially if if it's if an active investigation into the conspiracy is going. Certainly, I mean, it, it doesn't apply in science um, it, 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 unless you're in like a biologist investigating like chameleons or something who can hide from you. I don't know. Karma chameleons. But anyway, well, no, um, but, I mean, I mean, think think about nine eleven. Something which we agree is a conspiracy theory, given the operating definition we work with. Mm-hmm. Al Qaeda didn't try if we take the official theory to be a conspiracy theory al-qaeda didn't try to hide what they did they owned up to it quite quickly yes but they tried to hide it they did hide it while they were doing it though yeah but once the event was completed Mm. there was no need to engage in a cover-up and of course the assassination of julius caesar is another great example of course you had to keep assassinating julius caesar from julius caesar if you don't keep assassinating Julius Caesar from Julius Caesar, he's going to object to the assassination of himself. But once you assassinate Julius Caesar, you want to be celebrated as the heroes who have restored the glorious Roman Republic. So you want to kind of start shouting about it as quickly as possible. We're the ones who just did that thing. Mm. Well, as Lee puts it, but unlike carefully described and perfectly general scientific experiments that can be reenacted anywhere the expertise and apparatus are available, the public cannot replicate much of media or law enforcement investigations or ascertain with any certainty how these were actually conducted or not, nor can they have direct access to much of the evidence collected or ignored. They cannot observe or replicate the actions, motives, reasoning, and direct communications of key players in these information hierarchies, be it mass media or law enforcement, that play a controlling role in investigations or the neglect of such. Now, I saw in, in the copy of the paper you gave me, you still marked up with some of your comments. I see you noted at that point that law enforcement at least does have some fairly, fairly, fairly strict regulations on the, the, the handling and, and procurement and, and storage and what have you of evidence. Yeah, now, um, of course, law enforcement can disregard mm. those things. And as we've seen both back home and in the US, sometimes law enforcement goes out of its way to break those rules. But technically speaking, in the same way that you can't trust scientists to actually follow scientific protocols all the time, there are huge issues in the sciences with people doing experiments and then going, oh yeah, I, uh, I followed the protocol. Sure, that, uh, that guidebook with all the safety stuff in it, I definitely followed every step there. I definitely didn't do anything I wasn't meant to do. I didn't leak anything from the lab. Mm. But yeah, it turns out law enforcement in particular usually has fairly prescribed abilities and also has fairly rigorous reporting requirements at the same time. And that's going to be true for some media organizations as well, that they have to keep a paper trail of some kind, even if if they're taken to court, they might go, well, privilege says I'm not going to reveal who my source is. There is going to be some kind of paper trail so an editor can go, uh, so we're going to print this story where you're claiming that the President of the United States is a werewolf hunter. Uh, I'm going to need to see some documents. Oh, oh, I see. You've actually got the presidential diaries here. Fantastic. We've both seen that documentary. I have seen that documentary, yes. Now, Lee, I'm, I'm just going to leave that there. there we, we, are, we are talking about a specific film. If you know it, you know it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
So, so, so Lee, having sort of said that, um, or having claimed that uh, science and and the law and the media aren't necessarily the same, although we might argue with that, he then turns the other around and says that also even science, its its institutions are not immune from conspiracy. Uh, he says, Keeley's appeal to the purity of science begs the question against many conspiracy theories that impugn its invocation. Wherever humans are involved, conspiracy is sometimes a significant possibility. Science can fail for these same reasons, a legacy involving diverse motives, internal and external to science, examples going all the way back to Lysenko and the paleontological charade of Piltdown. But have we talked about Piltdown Man? That's we have not, and one. Piltdown Man is interesting mm. because Peter Hardeshadan was on the dig where Piltdown Man was yeah, discovered, was and so there was for a period of time a Jesuit conspiracy theory saying it was the Jesuits who planted Piltdown Man, even though we now know it was quite clearly Mr. Piltdown himself. Mm. But at any rate, so, so it's sort of summarised as that... He, I mean, he... also, I kind of want to push back on Lysenko because... Mm-hmm. Lysenkoism wasn't science. Lysenkoism was presented well, as yes, science yeah. by the Soviets, but the scientists who were operating in the Soviet Union at the time thought that Lysenkoism was bunk, pushed back against it. It just it turned out Lysenko had the air of Stalin, and those scientists didn't, so those scientists either lost their jobs or died. Lysenkoism was not a scientific endeavour Written with conspiracy, it was political ideology being presented as science. Mm. Yeah, I, mean, I guess you could say it was it was relying on the institution of science to try and um, well, except that all the respect, institutions but... of science at the time in the Soviet Union were against Lysenkoism until such time those people got replaced by their political masters. Mm. But I assume the political masters, when asked about this, would, would insist, oh, no, no, this is all totally scientific and you can trust it because it's science, not because I'm a politician who's saying so, even though... Yeah, but still, it, it's getting us into a kind of a dodgy <clears throat> is, ground yes. of... I mean, it wasn't... It was presented as science. It was labelled as science. It wasn't science. And yep. it wasn't being endorsed by... Well, I guess it wasn't being endorsed by scientific institutions. It's true there were a few Western scientific institutions who were Marxist-aligned that would go, oh, yes, of course Lysenkoism is real science. But it turns out the consensus of scientists working in both the West and the East at that time were going, yeah, this Lysenkoism, we don't think it works. Mm. Stalin likes it, though. And what Stalin likes, Stalin gets. He Until sure such did. time, Stalin decided really he didn't like Lysenkoism, yeah. and then it all went south. Mm. But yes, no. So Lee sort of summarizes this as that summarizes Brian's view as essentially saying that we would expect to see conspiracy theories to be uncovered over time, and then when they aren't, it gets harder and harder to continue believing in them. I think that was sort of Brian's idea of the the unwarranted mature conspiracy theories over time. The level of skepticism required to continue believing in it sort of makes them less and less tenable. Whereas Lee replies, well, no, we wouldn't expect to see conspiracy theories to be uncovered over time if they're competent conspiracy theories, if if they're... If unlike the the case of say your your nine elevens and your Julius Caesars, where they want want to be known afterwards, if it's something that people want to be kept secret indefinitely and they're good enough at it, then the fact that they haven't been revealed doesn't mean that they don't exist. Think I got that right? Yep. 
Yes. Yep, that okay. within the ballpark. There are, there are too, too many negatives in that sentence to my liking. And he goes on to say that, of course, the, the thing is that this is referring back to the, the business and with this definition of, of, of relatively proximate timeframes. So it says that as over time, people basically care less and less. The case goes cold, essentially. He talks about, as we've talked about in the past, sort of the Kennedy assassination, I think, is long enough ago that if if someone came out and conclusively proved that it was the mafia or the CIA or something like that and, and Oswald was a patsy, uh, it's not going to upend the world at this stage. People would go, huh, that's how about that? But I don't think it would... It's not gonna. It's not gonna overthrow the U.S. government or anything at this point. Although, once again, examples from outside the U.S. So there's still a lot of public interest in what happened to Olaf Palm in Sweden. Oh yes, yeah. To the point where people are going, you know, many of the people who were probably responsible have died, but if it turns out any of them are still alive, and we can prove it was a conspiracy of right-wing police officers, we are going to prosecute those guys until such time they're dead. Mm. So it does, I think, depend on a whole bunch of cultural factors. Possibly. I mean, he's going to be talking about the idea of toxicity as this idea that stuff that if it were, if the truth came out, it would cause sort of genuine harm to society as a whole. I don't know that even in the in the Swedish case, there's definite interest. People still care about it. But I think if it turned out that the police back in the 80s were behind it, would that would that overturn the institution of the police in Sweden today? But at any rate, his his claim, Lee's claim, is essentially that Brian argument Brian's argument's a question begging. He's he's sort of saying we should we should trust in these institutions because they are trustworthy. That so he says in the end, the PTA tries to ground the trustworthiness of public institutions, be they government or corporate media, media, in the uncontrollability of their vast bureaucracy of employees in possession of a significant conspiratorial secret, which will rebound upon any leadership that tries to keep it exploding into public view. Uh, which is always sort of going back to the idea that that the more people are involved, the harder it is to keep a secret, and the, the whole idea of how, how conspiracy theories come out, which is not a unproblematic model of how things work but um well, so i take it that what brian is saying is actually something slightly different which is if a conspiracy theory persists in public discourse with no positive evidence for its warrant accruing then you are justified in treating it as unwarranted which say you it's plausible to believe it's not the case, but it doesn't rule out the possibility that the conspiracy theory in question is true. You're simply going to look from a pragmatic point of view, if you've got no good evidence to believe a conspiracy theory after a lengthy amount of time, then you've got no good evidence to believe that conspiracy theory. He's not saying it's that it shows that the conspiracy didn't occur. He's simply saying it just shows that you've got no reason to believe the conspiracy has occurred. Well, yes, that's why things get a little bit murky. We were talking about warrant versus truth and what have you. But um, in terms of this idea, um, Lee says, how could so many keep a terrible truth for any time? A good question, and perhaps the root source of public trust's psychological appeal. We need to believe in the honesty of other human beings. Maybe this is the world as we understand it today, but it is also a poor caricature of life within our information hierarchy. The competent conspiracy theorist can argue that, one, the overwhelming majority of employees in these bureaucracies are excluded from critical information, and two, the high-placed remainder effectively controlled via means of 
both advantageous and punitive carrots and sticks, as it were. So he finishes off this whole section by saying, in conclusion, contra-arguments for public trust, an examination of the evidence specific to particular conspiracy explanations instead of an examination of our televisions, appears a more reliable and convincing method of epistemic evaluation. Next, we will consider how much more. And that leads into section three, the problem of toxic truths, significant grounds for public distrust. And again, he starts with the sentence, conspiracy is dangerous to democracy. Um, and, and sort of lays out this idea of, of uh, public trust and how it can be um, undermined, I suppose, saying that both public trust and its related uncontrollability ignore a vast number of real-world institutional motives for cover-up and how these can exploit the public's many mutually reinforcing epistemic vulnerabilities, even in a democracy that recognises itself as primarily valuable for being a democracy, especially in one. And so we get to this idea of, of, of what is a toxic truth. And I, this has been bugging me for a while. I, I, I was sure there was a, a pop culture reference that this reminded me of. And I finally worked out it was the, the, the old episode from old episode of the season two Simpsons, the one where Marge and Homer tell the story of how they first met. And, and Marge went to the prom with Artie, Artie Ziff, voiced by it's John Lovitz. played by John Lovitz. Mm. And there's, if you haven't seen the episode because you're not uh, a Generation X or in your in your forties or older, or um, a senior. Mm-hmm. The, the, the point is, at the end of the episode, Marge goes to the prom with with the guy, the egotistical Artie, and then afterwards he he tries to put the moves on her, and she slaps him, and just gets her, gets him to drive her home. And as he drops her off, he says to her, "By the way, it'd be, be good if you could not tell anybody about my busy hands. Not for me, but because I'm so reg- well regarded around here, it would damage the town to hear it." Although and- the way John loves it, it will damage the town. To hear it, he's got mm. some great intonation. In he fact, does. when I think about it, John Lovitz is the proto Matt Berry. He is a little bit, yes. But in this oh, particular yes. example, yeah, yes. I, I, I don't. To be honest, I like Matt Berry, but I don't quite get why people gush over his weird pronunciations and what we do in the shadows so much. Like a lot of the time, it's like he said a word in a funny way. I don't, I don't, I don't get why that's comedy genius in this particular. I don't. Anyway. Not important right now. Uh, the point was that that's an example of someone who, who's essentially making the case that, that this, this, is, this is a toxic truth and therefore should be kept for the good of everyone. Uh, although, of course, he's a, in that particular case, he's just an arrogant dick and, and, and what he's saying shouldn't be believed. But that's the sort of, that's the, that's the, that's the impulse, I think, that, that Lee is exploring here. So this uh, this section is in is in two parts. Three point one is called "Beyond Begging the Question: The Problems of Toxicity," and I have to say, every time he talks about toxicity, this and toxicity that, I f- immediately assume that he's talking about the system of a down song, and and just really has a, a problem with that. And I'm like, dude, what's it? That's a good. That's one of their classics. Well, see, I'm and, thinking more Britney Spears. Well, yeah, well, that was toxic. This one's actually called toxicity. So. Uh, uh, the, the point is, anytime you're talking, I'm not actually listening to you. I'm just thinking, this, uh, humming to myself. It's about somewhere between the sacred silence and sleep. Disorder. 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 I refuse to countenance this. Fair enough. So, so he's talking about, as he's brought up earlier, the idea of active cover-up versus cover-up by neglect, which he, he sometimes refers to as the why look response to toxicity. You know, not, not, not so much... It lets, we found out about this thing, 
let's cover it up. But why even look into this thing? Because we don't want to know if it's true or not. And in particular, it's, it's this cover up by neglect, this, this why look response that Lee is more concerned with. So he says, toxicity presents us with the likelihood, the warranted belief that the information hierarchy will intentionally ignore democratically critical significant possibilities and so realities. They're just too toxic. So he starts, he, he, as an example, he looks at the idea of corporate mass media, you, you, what, what, what people disparagingly call the MSM in the States. He says, would a mass media investigation aimed at convincing the population that the highest elements of national government are involved in the mass murder of thousands of civilians to be the story of the century? Or corporate suicide, probably both. So he's he's talking about the you know the context of events such as your nine elevens. If if it were to be shown that the government um, were, were actually behind some sort of horrific attack that had killed thousands of people, although to be honest, when reading him talking about this stuff, mostly reminded me of Jimmy Savile. In, in England, because there was a case of, like, even at the time, people had sort of said, well, surely if these rumours about the, the horrible things he got up to were true, it would be the scoop of the century for any paper that, that, that chose to expose him. And in fact, in that case, it was, it was then taken as evidence that that so obviously these rumours, there's, there's no substance to them. Mm, and of course, it turns out there were people who wanted to write articles on Savile's predilections whilst he was alive and editors went no no we're we're not going to we're not we're, we're not going to print that and there's a big debate that goes on in the british media about this because it did occur people were saying we tried to write a story on savile he was alive editors wouldn't let us the editors in question have gone well there just wasn't enough evidence it was conjecture and hearsay and due to britain's libel laws being so bad. Conjectures and hearsay do not stand up in a court of law if Savile wants to sue. So they were hesitant, not because they were going, this is too toxic to release, that's the argument they present, but because the law of the land meant they wouldn't be able to survive any legal repercussion for printing those particular stories. And so these stories can get really quite complicated mm. given other ancillary information we have access to mm. but at any rate lee's not talking about that specifically he's talking about to your 9-11 like examples and so he asks you know could revealing that the country is essentially run by domestic terrorists cause you know riots revolutions mass unrest um or, or even war you know could there, could there be a, a genuine um cost in human life to revealing these truths and he thinks well maybe there could be and so in these cases why why risk sparking off something like that as he puts it why look now this kind of argument always sounds a little bit like well there's a possibility this plays a role in people's decision making therefore this plays a role in people's decision making so the suggestion that this could occur is sometimes made out to be, and this is occurring. Yeah, I don't know. He, he says a similar thing about law enforcement. He says that the, essentially, essentially, he's basically saying that institutions have an incentive to maintain the status quo. He says, there's little doubt an overwhelming priority of the US federal government and its bureaucracy is the continu continuity 
of this government. Such is the nature of established national governments everywhere. Is there anything the federal government would not stoop to in order to stay in power? We cannot say, but it should not surprise us if the answer is no, nothing. Goes on, gives another example. This, this, this was a bit of a funny one. Imagine, I mean, and funny as an unusual, not funny not as funny. A, this this <laughs> no. example is going to be hilarious when you hear kind, when you hear the first line. Imagine kind of, your much-loved sister is killed in a car wreck. Hilarious. Yes. Then no, at the not, funeral, surrounded by your supportive and loving family, mourning the senseless tragedy. I, I'm trying to read this in the in the most light-hearted way possible. I, I, I don't a think you should. Sincere, but distant relative approaches you. She says she is compelling evidence. Your loving father murdered your sister and your favourite uncle and aunt are in on it. It's true, Dad was once involved in shady dealings, but such a disgusting allegation, if openly entertained at a time like this, could tear your family apart, undermining all it has accomplished together. No, it was just a car wreck. Call security! Yeah, no, that did not help. If anything, that made it worse. I, I, yeah, I, th that example, I thought, kind of depends on the family, really. I Immediately, my pop culture brain goes to this... Sixth Sense, where, where little Haley Joel Osment reveals to a mother during the funeral or the wake for her daughter that the, no, to the father that the mother had been Munchausen by proxying the daughter and that's why she died. And he sort of confronts the mother. I mean, although, of course, there was video evidence of that. I don't know. I think that that one, to say that's how that scenario would play out, I think is. I mean, I, I, I'm just thinking of an example of two sisters that I knew. And their father had had an affair, an affair which kind of broke the family up and caused a lot of damage to the family unit. And one sister absolutely loathed her father for it, and the other sister just wouldn't ever contemplate it. There was in the past, everything is fine now, and believe you had to love your parents no matter what. And so it really does depend on the family member. Some people would go, oh, yep, yep. I can imagine that, and other people will go, no, I'm just not going to recognise that at all. Yes, now, we're getting on on time, and there's actually a lot of this section left to go, so I don't know that we have time to go through the whole lot. To do. There's a there's a diagram. At one point, there's a diagram in t talking about how toxicity, toxic truths work, which, to be honest, I couldn't make head nor tail of. It was a, oh, see, I normally yeah, lines, say diagrams and philosophy articles, ridiculous, but an article I'm writing at the moment has two tables and a histogram in it. Ooh. And frankly, I just don't know who I am anymore. Mm. I don't know who I am. I'm putting histograms in articles now. I think maybe you need to seek, seek help for that. But mm, Some kind of immunotherapist, I'm mm. assuming. Something like that. Hypnotic regression, I don't know. So, so I mean, I, I guess the, the overall the, the overall feeling I got is he, he very much seems to be going for a, a, a worst case scenario sort of thing. You know, this this is the absolute worst way this could all play out, which I guess kind of is the point because as as he said before, and as he kind of says now, it's he's not he's not saying as such that the world is definitely like this that that institutions always do this and this will always happen but he it's a lot of it is we can't know that the world isn't like this at least in this instance we we can't know that institutions definitely yeah, this aren't behaving this feels way like he's trying to have it both ways i'm not saying the world is like this but also i'm saying we should think the world mm. probably is i'm not is saying like it's not all. like this Mm. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I'm not saying it's not lupus. 
But I'm also not saying it's not not lupus. But it's never lupus, so that's okay. Uh, the only other thing... lupus at least once. Was it? I have not watched every episode of House, unfortunately, so I couldn't say. One thing that did, that, that did stick out for me from this section, though, is he notes it's weird that Watergate is kind of the conspiracy theory that stuck eventually, and that actually sort of had... Whereas other things like the Gulf of Tonkin or what have you, things, th- things, conspiracy theories that have eventually come out that had much worse consequences than Watergate kind of just as you say with with your bushes and your tony blairs it's kind of just water under the bridge we wasn't quite sure why it is exactly what it was that um watergate made watergate stick i guess it's an early example of stuff going viral something like that every now and then stuff also, just, stuff just resigning mm. not a particularly common thing the american military committing war crimes actually disturbingly common well, yes, that's another thing entirely. Yeah, um, we're kind of used to the American military being bad, but we up up until Nixon, although I'm about to say Andrew Johnson, I think, is a contender here for saying you probably shouldn't think this. Up until then, we thought you know, presidents are, are typically at least goodish. You know, mm. they're on the side of angels to some extent, and then you get Nixon, case oh, ooh, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's a uh, that's a uh, that's a bit awkward. Mm. Mm. Presidents, eh? Uh, can't live with them. Don't have them in New Zealand. That's all I have oh. to say. Well, we have presidents of small societies like mm. parent-teacher associations. That is actually true. Uh, but so let's take section three point one as read. That's the the, the basic the, the the basic thrust of it, which brings us to section three point two, silencing individuals, which is essentially just a single long paragraph. I'm assuming this is another one of those reviewer B had a comment, so he stuck a section in here to to address that. Type I mean, that is scenarios. my theory. When you get a section which seems to stick out like a sore thumb, and you go, mm, probably put in there to get the paper through peer review. Mm. Given that section 3.1 was almost half the paper and section 3.2 is short enough that I can read it out in its entirety, so I will. But what of the lone investigator, a rogue agent who populates Hollywood movies, unveiling the conspiracy to the world? This trope is basic to our political mythos, the deep throat informant of Watergate law, the generic shocking all revealing press conference and print media slash internet doppelgangers. On the public trust approach, we need mainstream media and law enforcement to transmit truth. In the context of sufficiently toxic truths, if such agents go rogue and conduct personal investigations, they face a media and law enforcement establishment that has already wisely walked away. Their efforts are futile and easily foreseen as so. Word of mouth can accomplish little in our vast civilization, the internet notwithstanding, where virtually every view of events is passionately championed without official recognition, the truth is lost in a sea of alternatives. Add to this the reality of devastating punitive measures to self and loved ones, and our iconic rogue agent will not only be a failure, but probably rare. This is ancient. The advent of our democracy and the free press has not vanquished it. In our daily media, it remains in operation every minute of every day. From this perspective, the fact most of us do not directly encounter it is simply a testament to our personal political insignificance. Which, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I I guess, like, imagine... Imagine if if David Icke was actually telling telling the truth when he says he'd been going on about Jimmy Savile at the time, and nobody believed him because he's David Icke and they were the mainstream uh, mainstream media and quite happy to poo poo him. I mean, I guess there's a bit of that, but I don't know. Well, you, is... I mean, I mean, this is one of those things where, in an age of social media, 
and algorithmically delivered content, it turns out you can be a Mr. Beast or a Pupudai, or however you meant to pronounce his name, or even H Bomber Guy on YouTube and be a solo individual sitting in your office room. And actually, I mean, Mr. Beast and PewDiePie are not solo individuals. H Bomber Guy has a co-writer, but by and large, small groups of people sitting in their room doing research and then releasing reports that get millions of views or sometimes tens of millions of views on social media. You can actually be the lone investigator in this world. I mean, I think Lee's right to say it's rare, Mm. but it actually still occurs. And I think individuals can change the world because we now have an algorithmic system which allows individuals to get amplified in a way that you couldn't do 10 or 20 years ago. Mm. And also to the lone investigator and the rogue agent, you've got the whistleblower. I mean, I immediately think Edward Snowden um, is is an example of a single individual who managed to get... Although, I once recall having a conversation with Lee, and he's going, do you really think that Edward Snowden is a whistleblower, or is he a convenient plant to allow America to release some information? So you can also do the whole conspiracy theory there and go, well, these whistleblowers, they're just a kind of release valve for the for the establishment. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting interesting concept but yeah it's 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 a theory theory. and i mean you can then apply that to the individual who is their data is delivered to you algorithmically if you think the algorithm is designed to be biased in a particular way then sure you get an h bomber guy video on how terrible tommy tallarico as an individual actually is but that's because it's at the consequence of more important stories never being amplified at all. Mm. But at that point, we're not talking about toxic truths. At that point, we're actually talking about an actual conspiracy operating within companies to go, there's information out there that you don't need to know, and we're going to deliberately suppress it by promoting other information instead. Mm. But yes, at any rate, this this section does seem to be a little bit added on, presumably to to placate some uh, peer reviewer. Um, That's all he has to say about it, and it leads to section four, the conclusions, social epistemology and catastrophe theory. So the conclusion reads, the perspective of conspiracy theorists that assert cover-up has some epistemic merit. In our present Western-style information hierarchies, undirected cover-up appears probable when critical interests are at stake and can be encouraged and re-established when deviated from. Unlike millennia-old reality-detached abstraction-driven narratives of global scepticism, here only the intersection of familiar history with well-known motives for intentional neglect is at work. If we restrict ourselves to established hierarchies of information, this can be an epistemic catastrophe. Alternatively, in our increasingly distributed networks of information, there are options to our information hierarchies. Commitment to the, to the success of our system of representational democracy can easily, even predictably, be twisted into a betrayal of that very system. So how can we, as a self-governing people, defend against our epistemic vulnerabilities? In the end, we may be recognising our hierarchical information societies may inevitably be at critical instances for the vast majority epistemically opaque. 
Unlike ancient small tribal groups where close mutual surveillance and long familiarity gave us considerable access to social realities, in societies as vast and hierarchical as our own, there may be no adequate mechanism for the majority to reliably ascertain the facts in certain extreme and extremely important events. A visual image, the typical pyramid of information, with few at the the top knowing much and sometimes struggling to prevent information's natural gravitational flow of descent, is really upside down. Invert the triangle and dangerous information wells at the narrow bottom point and only through intentional efforts will it ever be pumped upwards and spread to the wider public expanses. No intention, no effort, none needed beyond a studied silence. In agreement, conspire, and in preparation should there be a few who present what they fail to realise are stillborn questions. And conspiracy theory? A nascent but not yet blooming prison riot that never dies. What would a civilization that we have compelling reason to believe is relatively conspiracy-free, particularly in times of crisis, look like? Whatever the answer, it would not look like ours. Curative and creative work lies ahead. Which essentially is the exact conclusion he'd come to in, in earlier points, I'm sure. The idea that a, a world free, the world that we know is free of conspiracy theory would not look like the world we currently live in. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, I didn't see a lot new in this from, from what I recall. Well, I mean, there's more stuff. of a lot, a lot of detail. The yeah, there's truth. development yeah. of the, the ideas, but um, his, his basic thesis doesn't seem to have changed. No, I mean, once again, I agree with the general thrust of this paper. I think there is something to the toxic truth notion. I should point out, having put in two criteria for what actually counts as giving us a notion of toxic truth, we've got a threshold criteria and a people on the street criteria, that bit is not particularly well developed. So we still have the vague notion of there are truths which are toxic, which might mean that some information does not get released due to societal pressures coming from the top, but we're not really given any any criteria to show when toxicity is present in a system. It is more the suggestion that toxicity can be present in systems, and certainly we don't live in an open enough society as it stands to think that we don't live in a society where there are some toxic truths out there. Mm. I did... uh, Yeah, I wasn't sure about his characterization of the media and that... The media does report on things like I'm sure everybody's heard of 9-11 truth conspiracy theories and QAnon especially gets a lot of reporting, although I guess a lot of the time it's not reported as, you know, here's what happened, it's here's what some people believe and often here's what some crazy people believe, um, especially when you look at your your... I don't know, Jordan Klepper for The Daily Show going out and, and, and interviewing the people at the Trump rallies and all that business. But um, well, The other thing which is interesting about this paper is that because of Lee talking about toxic truths, and that's not just in this paper, but in previous papers as well, I kind of came up with a complementary thesis, which I call the polite society hypothesis, which is that Sometimes you don't need a top-down approach, which is the toxic truth one, that there's information that people at the top think would be toxic for people at the bottom, i.e. the hoi polloi, to know, know about. No, sometimes that toxicity actually emerges from the bottom up. And the example I was thinking of was in the 60s and 70s, it was widely known that the police fitted up suspects to get convictions. 
And everybody just went along with it. There was no covering up of it. It was a well-known factor that the police fitted suspects up. But it was kind of appropriate because those people were criminals and they deserved to be in prison. It was simply considered to be impolite to actually mention how insecure many of those actions were. And you get the same example that goes on in family units. Here, most of the people in the family unit know that X is having an affair and cheating on their partner, but it would be impolite to bring it up. Even though everybody knows about it, everybody acts as if they don't know about it. And so sometimes this kind of weird informational control is not top down, it's actually bottom up. Mm. Well, have you have, so you written on that? Yeah, Is the plant society there? hypothesis. Yeah. I think there's a nascent version of it in the philosophy of conspiracy theories, and it's appeared in a few other places as well. Mm. Well, there you go. I think the only uh, sensible solution then is for you and Lee to, um, to get into a bit, bit, of, bit of beer knuckle boxing, I think. That'll sort this out once and for all. Mm. I'm not really a violent person. No, you don't have to be violent. You just have to you get a good, good, good a bit of Marquis de Queensbury rules. Good that gives you a bit of decorum, bit of bit of fear and and gentlemanly con- conflict. You know, I don't know. Fine, fine, jelly wrestling it is. Whatever, we've got that sorted. So we're at the end of an episode, uh, which means we now now need to go and do a bonus episode for our patrons. What are we going to be talking about this week? To our well, that was hinted at the top of the show. We're going to be talking about that special issue of social epistemology, which is slowly cranking articles out as we speak as online access. And so I'm going to give you the abstracts of the articles and I'm going to get your sincere and honest response because you have no idea what's in the issue. That's actually true, yes. That is actually true. Although I think you have been putting some of them up on Mastodon, but I haven't followed any of the links. So my ignorance is my defense. Your laziness is your ignorance, which is your defense. Yes, I'm willing to go along with that. So uh, we're at the end of an episode. Um, I'm still in my head humming the lyrics to Toxicity by System of a Down, and I hope you are too. So I'm going to leave both of us to to hum to ourselves uh, and simply just um, say out loud goodbye. I've never listened to a System of the of a Down out album. I wouldn't recognise a single song they've played. Oh, I bet you would. Latitude. The podcaster's guide to the conspiracy stars Josh Addison and myself, Associate Professor M R X Denter. Our show's conspiracy Sorry, producers are Tom and Philip, plus another mysterious anonymous donor. You can contact Josh and myself at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider joining our Patreon. And remember, they're coming to get you, Barbara.